Right, hello and um, welcome to the HD Lockdown podcast. That's the, well, uh, the humanities department, I suppose. And uh, it's a good time to introduce um, the rest of the gang. We've got um, Mr. Patterson. Um, say hello, Mr. Patterson. Hello. And uh, we've got Mr. Lawton. Hi there. Right, so um, yeah, this is uh, Mr. Eggleston. This is myself talking now. Um, I'm obviously the teacher of uh, or the curriculum lead, I suppose, of uh, history and citizenship, and Mr. Lawton, the sort of the director of humanities, and Mr. Patterson, our teacher of history, in the corner there. So we're going to do quite a few things today. We're going to talk a bit about a bit of history, a uh, bit of geography. We're going to give some stuff to help you with your work. Obviously, everyone's all over the shop at the moment in terms of in different places, so we can't be together as normal. So we're going to try this and see how this goes down. Um, Right, so uh, I thought we'd start by doing a little bit of, uh, you know, who we are in terms of our kind of academic background, I suppose. We're going to, now we're going to spend a few moments doing it. Um, Mr. Lawton, why don't you start us off and tell us a little bit about um, your geography background? Yeah, so I'm the token geographer of our little trio, and um, I probably have the least amount of qualifications here for what I'm thinking, but... Uh, I've got an undergraduate degree as a Bachelor of Science in Geography, so that means I'm a physical geographer by trade. I love the weather. I love rivers. But at the same this time, I've got two... This is particularly hard for you right now, then you're not allowed to go outside as much. Oh, yeah, I know, but I'm starting to embrace the old human geography at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, I've got two-thirds of a Master's in Educational Leadership, whatever that means. And then apart from that, I'm a fully qualified teacher. Doesn't mean I can actually do it, but at least I've got a qualification. That says You've I got can. the paperwork. That's all that matters. Uh, mm. uh, Mr. Patterson, fill us in. Uh, so I have a joint honours in history and politics from the illustrious Stirling University. And I am also three years running humanities FIFA champion. Uh, th this this trophy has never been awarded. Uh, this title has never been on the line, just so you're all aware. Um, yeah, and myself, um, I'm obviously, I've got a master's and uh, sort of um, a BA in history from Bangor University up on the Wel North Welsh coast. Uh, it's my spiritual home. And um, hopefully some of those academic qualifications can come of some use now as we uh, regale you with tales from the past and from the present. Um, so, uh, let's get into the notices first. So, uh, massive well done on all the resources that you managed to get sent into us and uh, that you shared with us. Um, I know it's been tricky. And in terms of how to upload work, just make sure, and I think it's a big push from all of us really, is make sure that your work is in the same uh, Google document. Uh, we had loads and loads of emails from different people kind of sharing different things, and we get that it's the first time you've done this. Um, but if you could try to make sure it's in the same, same document, just so it's easy for us to find, and then we can start sending you feedback and bits and pieces like bits, bits and pieces like that. Um, one of the things, so, sorry for all the emails. Uh, there's a couple of times where I've maybe said that people haven't sent me stuff when it turns out you have, but you've sent it me somewhere else. Um, we're getting used to this as well. Um, so again, hopefully those emails will start to slow down a little bit over the next few days and weeks as we get into the swing of things. And um, another thing I'd like to give you a shout out to is the resources that are available to you. Uh, me and Mr. Patterson have put together a big list of kind of history kind of films and documentaries and stuff like that um, that we've shared with you all now and uh, if you're ever kind of uh, stuck for time you got, haven't got much to do at the moment I imagine there's obviously going to be bits of, bits of time like that um, have a look on there there's, there's films documentaries books podcasts um, all kind of history related most of them 
have links to the themes uh, to the courses that we're doing. Um, do you guys have any kind of big things you want to kind of give a heads up to um, at the moment? No, I think I can just reiterate the whole, um, keep everything in one document. As soon as you created that Google Docs, keep it all inside there. And please don't share me any more documents. Thank you. <laughs> We've had a lot of documents shared this past, uh, past fortnight. Right, so I think, I think that's the end of the official end of part one. Um, we're now going sweeping into uh, part two where uh, despite Mr. Patterson's protestations, we are going to uh, talk very, very briefly about how we've been getting on, how we've been coping during the, uh, the lockdown that is now nine days, uh, not many, nine days into it. So, um, Mr. Patterson, I mean, how, how have you been dealing with this, uh, all this time inside? Well, I've had the pleasure of uh, reading some of our year 10s and year 12s work, which has been riveting. That goes without saying, so I mean, I think you've got to kind of, yeah. that goes without saying. Um, I've also been just um, doing a bit of history stuff, reading um, Simon Seabag Montefiore's excellent book, Stalin, Court of the Red Tsar. Um, any of our year 12ers that are listening, it's a really good one if you're doing Russia or your coursework. Um, but apart from that, just kind of hanging about, shouting at people that I see walking on the street. <laughs> well, that's, that's just a normal uh, normal week for you, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's it. Uh, Mr. Lawton, how have you been coping? So um, I've been preparing for the last couple of weeks for years now, and I found it quite straightforward, to be honest. I mean, uh, I've been smashing through some books. Um, I uh, read the What About Me, a very, very good book about capitalism in the model age. Uh, Reread uh, Never Let Me Go by Ishiguro. Uh, it's a GCSE text oh, now, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah, very good, very good. And uh, 1312 at the moment by Montague, uh, a book from a few weeks ago about football ultras. That's pretty good. Um, been doing some running, been running to the clock tower on uni, and back and um, practicing some trombone and doing an album a day. Had some real, really bad albums come out of that, but at the same time, there have been some gems at the same time. Yeah, I've been suffering those uh, albums a day on, on Instagram, uh, seeing your stories. Thank you, Mr. Lawton, for, for sharing that. Um, hopefully you didn't see the uh, original part of Skepta's release where I accidentally uh, put up some lines that maybe were a bit risque for people to hear, and I had a few comments come through uh, saying, what the hell are you listening to? And... Uh, I quickly changed which lyrics I decided to put on my story. You've got to be so careful these days, haven't you? Um, yeah, so I, I can't really say I've done anything quite as kind of academically uh, stimulating as you guys. <clears throat> I haven't read a book of any description yet. Actually, though, I have been kind of listening to a little bit of Time Traveller's Guide to the Middle Ages, but that's nowhere near as, uh, as kind of rigorous, I would have thought. Um, because you've got to kind of liken yourself, you know, obviously the, those guys are going through some pretty grim times with the Black Death. You know, maybe I can take some uh, some tips and make some notes and that kind of thing for what we're having to put up with. Um, right then, folks. So we're moving now into at the end of part two. Um, we're now moving, uh, sweeping into part three. We'll be back in just a few moments. Uh, so welcome back to part three. Uh, in part three, we're going to talk about the work you've been uh, doing this week, firstly in history. Um, we're talking about the Elizabethan religious settlement and the reaction to that. And we're just going to go through things in a bit more detail, maybe ask each other a few questions. 
and hopefully give you a little bit more food for thought when it comes to uh, the history that you've been working on this week. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about is, like I said, the Elizabethan religious settlement and why she um, went for this kind of moderate uh, Protestant, this middle ground, um, I suppose. Um, I think one of the things that we wanted to highlight for you guys when thinking about this was the wider context. And, you know, I think it's, it's really difficult for us kind of modern thinking of a modern setting about kind of saying, oh, she was a tolerant person. She was much more kind of understanding of people's faiths, like maybe a lot of us are nowadays. But I think putting her in a modern context is kind of misleading. I mean, she wasn't moderate in a, in a modern context at all. She still, you know, went on to execute Catholics. She was very kind of restrictive in terms of what they could do. But I think compared to her father, compared to her brother, compared to her sister, she was moderate. And that's, what, that's where they get the moderate from. So she's, we're comparing her to um, her predecessors. Um, it's interesting to think about maybe the reasons why she goes for being a moderate Protestant is because she obviously sees the kind of the reaction to what her brother does in terms of the kind of hardline Puritan and what her sister does in terms of the extreme um, Catholicism that she goes for and obviously has you know, hundreds of Protestants executed. And one of the ideas I was going to sort of put forward here, I don't know what you think about this, um, Mr. Patterson, um, this idea of her being like a, a personal victim of the religious divisions herself in the sense because she gets put in put in the tower doesn't she by by mary mr patterson is nodding here he's not he's not saying anything but he's nodding um so yeah she was put in the tower by uh, by her sister because she was linked to or because elizabeth was linked to the white rebellion the white rebellion was very much about kind of um protestants trying to overthrow Mary or at least Protestants being unhappy with Mary marrying um, or marrying a Catholic in the, in the shape of Philip of Spain and that because Liz was all like kind of tied up in this that she ended up being a victim of the religious divisions in society she became a victim of her religious faith and the fact that she was you know a Protestant during a, the time of a Catholic ruler in the shape of her sister and that maybe you know possibly that could have fed into this idea that look she didn't want people to be punished for their own religious convictions Yes, she didn't want them to go out and worship freely. She didn't want people to go and do whatever the hell they wanted, but she didn't want people to be um, locked away, essentially, for just believing in something different to the, the sort of to the monarch. And you can kind of see that in the act of uniformity is that she gives uh, in 1559. And one of the questions we had from a student today was what are the key dates that we kind of need to know? And I think 1559, the act of uniformity, she does this you know, a year after, um, a year after you know she comes into power and um that has in there you know catholics are given the right to worship at home in you know in private the, the some of the kind of ornaments and decorations are kept within catholic churches essentially to kind of keep the kind of the setting of a church being quite similar to what people are used to trying to kind of bring this you know bringing people together to a certain degree so there's less animosity there's less division and, uh, you know, Elizabeth being a victim of it, seeing kind of the ructions caused by a father, by a brother, by a sister, probably. And also you can bring in, you know, maybe the influence of her advisor, William Cecil. But probably that would be why she ended up going for this somewhat middle ground. But I think it's misleading to see it as a middle ground. It's not like halfway house. It's not halfway between Protestantism and Catholicism. It is very much. She's a Protestant, but she keeps elements of Catholicism and she just doesn't. Be, she's not as harsh on the Catholics 
as her sister, as or sorry, as her brother was, or maybe as her sister was, towards the Protestants. So she's not a middle ground in terms of religion. She is a Protestant, but she just keeps a bit of the Catholicism there to try and keep, you know, most people, most people on side. I think we're going to pass over now. We're going to have a think about some of the stuff that you've been doing this week, because I know you've been talking, you've been doing work on the reaction to this settlement. Um, Mr. Patterson, I mean, you've been having to think about why um, kind of the settlement doesn't really say work in the long term. One of the questions we had in from a student was why did her compromise not work? Um, so I, I, just what kind of ideas have you got on that? Well, so it's a really, um, a really interesting question, actually, this idea of did the religious settlement work or not? If it didn't, why? Um, initially, and you'll have been looking at the reaction to it. Initially, it actually works quite well. There are no major sort of uprisings or anything like that for the first 10 years of a reign or so. Um, but the reason for that is that a lot of people assume Elizabeth is going to get married and they are waiting to see who she picks. So, you know, um, way back at the start, when we first started looking at Elizabeth, we looked at some of the suitors, some of the people she thought about marrying. On the one hand, you've got people like Robert Dudley, who was a Puritan, strict Protestant. And right along the other side, you've got King Philip, um, Philip of Spain, who was a Catholic. So a lot of people were sort of just holding out and waiting to see who the king was. Because, you know, we're talking 1500s, whoever the king is, he'll be the one that makes the proper decision. This is just a temporary thing. That's what a lot of people thought. However, as we get on through her reign as we get into the sort of late 50, 1560s um, people have realized that Elizabeth is not going to get married anytime soon and lots of the Catholic countries and lots of the Catholic um, kind of individuals begin to realize they have to take some action so you have things like the Northern Rebellion you have the Papal Bull and these things are to kind of try and force Elizabeth to change it, to make it more Catholic, or to force English Catholics to just get rid of her and replace her. Um, these things are made even worse for Elizabeth by the fact that Mary, Queen of Scots, her Catholic cousin, has come to England in 1568. So they all kind of coincide these things. Mary, Queen of Scots, a Catholic option for Queen, and then the Catholics start to kind of react to Elizabeth. Um, and that creates a cycle. The Catholics try and get rid of Elizabeth, so Elizabeth makes her rules harsher. You get things like the recusancy fines or the recusancy fines being brought in. These um, recusancy is like if you act against the government or you refuse to go along with the government. So I suppose the people who are still going to the pub are recusing themselves from the coronavirus um, policies. Um, these things are brought in, these fines, to force people to go to church, to force people to follow the Protestant Church of England, the Elizabethan settlement. Because the rules get harsher, Catholics start to react to that, really try and get rid of Elizabeth. So Elizabeth has to make the rules harsher again, then you get more plots, and it just becomes this sort of cycle. So if Elizabeth brought in this religious settlement to keep the peace, that fails. She does not keep the peace. She's not able to stop Catholics and Protestants from fighting each other. On the other hand, none of these plots are successful. 
which maybe tells us that most people in England do support her. So maybe for the majority, it does work. It's the extremists on either side that are not happy with the settlement. Um, more importantly, though, especially if you go on to do A-level, the king that eventually replaces Elizabeth, King James, he basically keeps the settlement the exact same. He makes very few changes. So obviously something was working. And if you look at the Church of England now, um, it's very similar to what Elizabeth kind of sets up. She is the first queen to set up a Church of England in its kind of modern sense that we would recognize today. So this idea of why did it fail? Maybe in the short term it fails, but in terms of long-term religious settlement, actually, you could argue it's very successful. But a really interesting question that we were sent in there. Yeah, and I think uh, just to, to add to that, I think the, the evidence of looking at the fact that um, Elizabeth was queen for, for 40 years in such a tumultuous time, and all of the plots and rebellions were, relatively speaking, very small scale. Um, would, would, like you said, hint at this fact that she, you know, has support from the vast majority of the population. And you can see that in 1588 when the Spanish do invade, is that the people, instead of rushing out and hoping to join in this Spanish invasion, is that they rally behind the Queen, even if maybe they are, you know, closet Catholics, essentially. So, um, yeah, there is a lot of, a lot of success there. So uh, that brings us to the end. Oh, unless Mr. Lawton has a little question about the Elizabethan settlement or has he just been listening and learning? Yeah, no, no, I, I do actually. Um, so you keep using the word settlement and as a geographer, I'm yeah. constantly thinking of houses and yes. towns and cities with the word settlement. Do, do you not mean that in this instance? Uh, no, not really, no. So it's not in terms of a place. It's, it's in terms of a, uh, a set of... Um, Gu uh, rules guidelines I suppose um, that essentially the people are being given uh, as a kind of this is my plan this is what I want this is my set this is what I've settled upon and I want you to kind of uh, go forward with this ah okay yeah no that's good to hear because obviously um, whether we're talking about settlement in different contexts like in UGCS English it's very easy to get confused and you're right and it's a word actually that saying to the students you know the Elizabethan settlement as though that's something everyone should just understand what that means is you know uh, not always the case yeah I get that mm -hmm. um, so end of part three uh, we'll be back in a few moments for part four where Mr Lawton will talk about geography welcome back it's part four time and it's the geography corner um, over to Mr Lawton for some exciting geography news yeah, so this is where I get my little time to shine and Mr. Patterson can go to the toilet and Mr. Eccleston can go and have a rest as well. So um, this week, uh, we've all been kind of having our worlds be made a lot smaller for us and um, the world keeps turning out there as the coronavirus is unfortunately changing the human systems in which we live and I think it's so telling at the moment where people have got such hardship in their lives and yet the planet keeps creaking along and we've had a massive earthquake in Croatia so as a, um, people have been dealing with this and how systems have been stretched to the limits so we've had a 5.3 earthquake this week in uh, so Croatia and at the time of recording this morning we've actually had a 6.5 earthquake in uh, Idaho um, in America yeah absolutely um, unbelievable times for these things to happen 
but it reminds us that as our human geography and our human existence on the planet can be completely altered in a short space of time from what we're used to um the physical geography of our world keeps plodding along and um, in croatia we've seen uh what historically has been a very significant church collapse two of the spires in the cathedral of zagreb church the capital have collapsed um we've seen 16 people die um we've seen hospitals be evacuated in the middle of the night as they're dealing with the croatia uh, the coronavirus and um, we've seen mothers in freezing cold conditions out in croatia um taking their babies outside whilst also trying to social distance it's been a very strange time indeed so a little bit of a geography snippet from the world there but um at the same time i uh i want to bring into light the uh they have impacted geography, history, politics. I thought the others would like this and they could also um, get involved with this. And uh, the the name of some of our previous epidemics, and this will link in well with your historians and uh, your course in me medicine through time. Yeah. And uh, as we are now just over 100 years um, after the Spanish flu, which it's uh, been compared to a lot of the time at the moment in the news, our current outbreak, um, it's called the Spanish flu. So the Spanish flu um, comes about and its name originates from the fact that um, Spain at the time was one of the only countries that wasn't going through censorship at the end of the First World War. So the newspaper press were actually able to report about the outbreak of this flu where nobody else actually wanted to report about the outbreak of the flu in their countries because it was going to be seen as a sign of weakness. It was also going to give away um, centres of population and so on and so forth. But it was spread due to the global connections brought about by the war, the um, intermixing of populations, the, um, the people returning home, in a, if you don't know, it was in 1918 when the Spanish flu epidemic really took over and pandemic, I suppose we should really call it, uh, really took a grip of the world. Um, but actually when the um, epidemiologists and the virologists went back through the records to um, find out where it had come through, kind of do their CI, CSI Miami sort of thing and find out where it came from. Um, one of the biggest originated places and one of the first documented cases were actually from Kansas in the USA. And uh, yet we refer to this solely as the Spanish flu. And um, I think Mr. Trump at the moment has been uh, calling this the, the Chinese virus um, a lot of the time and things like that and uh, I think after a hundred years of um, travel and integration through globalization where we use Chinese products we use American products all the time we label these names and we put these places attached to them and in one aspect I can see people doing this for to distance themselves from it if it's called the spanish flu it's not the british flu it's nothing to do with me and in fact it, the french actually called it the french flu in uh, 1918 as well but uh, they quickly moved to calling it the spanish flu and their politicians said afterwards to kind of move the blame away from their country in the annals of time and i think it was just pertinent to kind of talk about geography place the interconnections of places how these sorts of flus come together yet the names of them are what we remember and what we remember in these periods of time yet they're also interconnected I, I don't know what you guys would want to say about that I just thought it was well, a nice little tidbit it is because obviously it's it's pretty much 100 years isn't it from from the, kind of the last major kind of pandemic I suppose on a, on a truly 
global scale with you know, huge, huge numbers. And the fact that it came just after the end of the First World War, when people obviously across the world were reeling from what had been happening. And then obviously to have this, you know, other kind of um, assault on them in a way uh, that was actually, in terms of numbers, far, far worse in terms of the actual casualties, the fact that people lost their lives. You've got to remember that the First World War um, saw probably some of the greatest migration of people in such a short period of time um, from all different backgrounds, just intermingling at a point where um, health systems hadn't really had to comprehend that. Maybe if you did have an outbreak of it before, it's... it spread so quickly in this sense. I mean, we can, you've obviously got the, the Black Plague in the past, but that was through the shipping routes. And, and all the Black Death, I mean, if you kind of want to look at it in terms of the spread of the disease, just for a bit of comparison, mm. you know, the, the disease, or the, sorry, the, 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 the plague itself emerged in China, um, again, uh, <laughs> in like the sort of the 1330s, but it didn't actually arrive in England until 1348. So you're talking well over a decade, essentially. For and this is because the trade routes, yes, they were moving, but it just wasn't spreading anywhere. I mean, in this, in, in the coronavirus outbreak, it's been the space of about a month, if that. Yeah. Yeah, we, we talk about in geography all the time at a level the shrinking world theory, and the idea that what it used to take months for something to occur in the um, I don't know in the 1500s, let's say, now can happen in the space of seconds let's say in terms of transfer of information but we've seen this with viruses and with the spread of disease so quickly and it's that kind of interesting kind of thing about how the world with which we have created now or the world which has evolved now in terms of being um, kind of so interconnected diseases spread so fast but at the same time because of our global connectivity but at the same time we have this situation where we also have that ability to fight it in a way that they didn't have 700 years ago as well so you kind of you can't win really um you, you either go with that, the technological advances are going to get you one way or the other aren't they in, in many ways um yeah very much so um just to just to finish off my little corner and um just to bring it back home to geography uh, to history for you guys away from geography um we're thinking about you're talking about the elizabethan period um and uh, really, I, I'd stand back and think that we're talking about one, one, one family's like, ideas of where they should drag an entire country with religion. But the idea of uh, the inequality at that time, um, I think when we look at it from a geographer's point of view today, we've got to be quite optimistic at the time when you're talking about with uh, an Elizabethan England especially, we're talking about high child infant mortality rates. We're talking about abject squalor that people are living in. But we're talking about a level of inequality there that is actually um, far, far smaller. And the difference between the poorest in Elizabethan England and the richest in Elizabethan England is actually a lot less than it is today. If we were to compare Elizabethan England in the time of Elizabeth I, and we looked at the poorest person, and then let's say the Queen herself, the monarch, is the richest person, or the Pope, maybe, um, is the richest person at the time, um, the actual difference between them is a lot smaller than it would be in the modern day terms between somebody who is the poorest person in society in England today 
and the richest people in society there because of some of the fundamental human rights to bring in a bit of citizenship that people have been privileged to and the health and qualities that everybody has potentially got access to in the UK. And um, yeah, um, it, I think it's quite interesting just listening to that, but we've got to feel positive that we've come um, a long way in terms of medicine, but also kind of negative at the same regards that inequality is probably higher now and it's more extreme than it was yeah, in those I think, days. Because I think it's the traditional kind of idea, isn't it, that you look at you know society 500 years ago and you think of it as being this rigid, um, almost kind of linking to the, the old ideas of the feudal system, but this link, this society of being top down and those people at the top are so far away from those people at the bottom. But you're right. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of their lives, mm -hmm. the differences between them and their access to certain things, it's, yeah, you're right. It's, it's not got, it's not quite as extreme as possibly, um, as possibly you'd imagine. I mean, in terms of access to healthcare and, and, and that kind of stuff, they're all pretty kind of, um, well, let's say that they're not, they're not far away from falling, catch, catching a cold, falling ill, and then potentially dying because of, you know, Elizabeth herself, she almost died of smallpox in 1562, yeah. you know, and yeah, uh, the, the, the quality of life overall that people experience and was far less than today. Uh, but, but in terms of the inequality difference, uh, it's actually way worse today. That's all right. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Lawton. Uh, brilliant. Um, so we're going to move on now to, Hold on a second. I think we've got a little interjection from uh, our very own Mr. DeSalvo, who's on the line. Hello, Mr. DeSalvo. Hello, hello. This is uh, Mr. DeSalvo. First of all, I hope everybody is okay. And uh, thank you for all the work that you've submitted. I hope that while you are listening to this, you're not frantically trying to finish all the work that I have set. Um, and I hope everybody's feeling okay despite you know not seeing me for you know a couple of weeks now um lockdown's been a bit um obviously challenging for everybody and um you know we're all trying to keep a bit of a structure to the day i've um now you know got a very very precise structure on how many hobnobs i can eat throughout the day but i'm trying to break that routine um by doing other things like um going for a run today was the second one and um yeah i'm trying to learn how to play the piano which is not going particularly well um so uh to start this new podcast i will just introduce you to some fun facts about french first and two fun facts about spanish so if you study french you might have uh, never realized that there are no genuinely french words uh, that begin with the letter w or in fact that in fact contain the letter um w um so if you think of some of these words, they are actually borrowed from the English language. So words like wagon for wagon and western for western. And, um, you know, and the French were very, very clever in removing these words uh, beginning with a W. For example, if you think of Wales um, in French, that is Pays de Galles, and I'm sure everybody remembers that anyway. The second thing that some of you may know already is that obviously a lot of English words are in fact French. Um, my favourite one is café because it makes me cringe when some of you guys say calf and part of me dies uh, a little bit when uh, people say that. And then there's brunette, there's silhouette, and then when you go to the post office depot to get your Amazon parcel, well depot is also a French word. 
Uh, let's look at Spanish now. So for those of you who are doing Spanish or are interested in Spanish, um, I've got good news. Experts say that it takes 24 weeks only to achieve professional proficiency in Spanish. Now, that's obviously, um, you know, excluding sleeping, eating and all of that. So you must spend 24 weeks actually studying it. I don't think you are allowed any breaks. And um, the other thing is that Spanish is the second most studied language in the world. Uh, it might sound a bit dull, but actually means that within three generations, almost 10% of the population will be able to communicate in Spanish. And that will hopefully include you guys uh, if you continue to you know, pay attention. All right. Well, I hope that you found some of this interesting and I hope everybody is keeping, you know, healthy. Okay. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. DeSalvo, for that. That was great. Um, I can't wait for this lockdown to be over so I can head off to the CAF anytime soon. I don't know about you. Um, right. Moving swiftly on to the final part where we're going to take some of your questions. Can't wait. So part five, uh, I've asked over the last couple of days for some of the historians to send in some questions. Maybe next time out, we'll get some more questions in from some geographers and various different people as well, hopefully. Um, I've picked out a few questions and what we'll do is we'll try our best to answer them, see what we can do. Um, the first actually really good question we had was about why Elizabeth's compromise, why her settlement didn't work, which hopefully we've uh, sort of addressed and talked about earlier on. Um, Another question as well, which was asking, what does recusancy mean? Um, I think we pretty much addressed it, um, did we not, uh, Mr. Patterson, in your little bit? Yeah, I think so, just about. But yeah, it means to sort of um, like refuse to follow the government instructions, basically refuse to toe the line. So in this sense, the people were being fined for not going to Protestant church, which was what um, Elizabeth's government were telling them to do. Yeah, so, like, so today, yeah, like like you said earlier, the analogy. If, so today, if you were to go and hang out at your friend's house, if you were to go out in a big group and go for a walk in the park, you could be also accused of being recusants uh, today, um, much like the Catholics of England were in the 1560s and 70s. Obviously, uh, they could go to their friend's house, but they just couldn't uh, worship openly. Um, so another good question. Uh, this is a bit of a weird one, really, but I kind of like it. How did the papal bull? actually get to England. So the idea is that the, the Pope, you know, gives the message uh, from Rome. And then of course, how does the message get around? Because of course, Catholics aren't worshiping together. Um, I, I, I don't know, have you had any thoughts on this, Mr. Patterson? Potentially on how on earth does a message like this get around? I mean, generally it's through word of mouth, isn't it? It's through the, the priests. That is the kind of, um the system the Pope has. So the, the papal bull, it doesn't go to everyone in the world. It's not it like goes to the, the churches. Uh, it's not in the Catholic newsletter then. Yeah, exactly. It goes to the churches and then from the priests, from the ministers, as we know, within the Catholic Church, um, the only way you can talk to God is by talking through your priest, um, by communicating with God through the priest. So the priest then passes on the papal bull to his flock the Catholics that he kind of looks after and then yeah word of mouth it gradually kind of spreads through the this, country. This is all done in secret 
you know, under the radar. It's not the kind of thing you'd want to be caught carrying around in your pocket as you wandered around central London in 1570. Um, this is something that would have been passed around almost like a secret society to a certain degree. And, um, you know, it would have been something that would have been almost like a banned document to have if you had a copy of it. Um, most, of the, most of the people couldn't have read it, though, am I right? No, absolutely right. Yeah, so it was word of the mouth. Yeah. yeah. But indeed, if you were someone who were like a, a closet priest and you were you were carrying this, this you know, a copy of this document, you'd probably find yourself in trouble. Um, OK, so we've got a few other questions on like kind of general kind of things about the course. Might as well answer a couple of them now. Or actually, also, I should say is we've had some other really good questions about uh, particularly about Mary, Queen of Scots and some of the Catholic plots, but we are going to be moving on to Mary Queen of Scots in the next couple of weeks anyway, so we might kind of address those at a later date if we do this again. Um, we've got one question is, how long are the exams? Um, so from Charlie. Um, and Char so this, this question, how long are the exams? We've got two exams, which will be next summer, and um, they are going to be each two hours long. Okay, so paper one is two hours, paper two is two hours. Paper one includes uh, the America course, which you've already studied, and the Conflict and Tension in Asia course, which we'll be doing in year 11. And then the paper two is uh, including medicine, which you haven't studied yet, and Elizabeth, which of course you're doing right now. Um, and that answers Keris's question as well, which is how many exams do we have to sit for the GCSE? Two. Um, we've had some interesting kind of wider questions though on like general kind of history. Um, and uh, we have the first one, which is uh, from Blue, which said, who was the most powerful king or queen and um, I thought I'd just kind of open it up to the to the room or rooms as it were um, who do we think oh is it is it impossible to say I'll start with you uh, Mr Patterson um maybe someone like um Henry VIII or something like that um generally it's down to the character of the king or queen um you know technically they all have huge amounts of power um, in fact really they all have the same amounts of power until you get kind of into the modern era um, but it's about how they use that power and Henry VIII you know love him or loathe him he ruled England kind of almost himself um, he had some key advisors of course but he, he completely changed the country he um, kind of would become very Protestant and then change his mind and become more Catholic and everyone just had to follow him and um, he's so kind of influential that all three of his children end up becoming king or queen. Um, yeah, my vote would be Henry VIII. Um, I, from the outside looking in, I would go for Queen Victoria. Um, I think that in terms of the ripple effect that she's had on, not just for the country itself, but the entire continent, such as Africa and Asia, it's been colossal. And uh, I think at that time, uh, probably the, the peak of the empire, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, I mean, being like the Vi, was she the Vi, what was she of um, India? Was it the, she was the, the title? She was the Empress of Empress, India. Empress of India. Sorry, I just didn't want to get that title incorrect. But yeah, um, like to have that much control over 800 million people at the time, that is, that is ridiculous, really. And uh, I think. The systems that were put into place and then as her her empire collapsed over years and years um the the impacts on those countries and i think in terms of the most power there the most power on people's stories and countries stories i think that's huge yeah. no i think is that's the thing is, is that the nature of what we mean by power 
I guess it depends on which way you come from it and significance and impact. Mm. Um, I was going to throw in there just for Mr. Patterson, um, uh, everyone's favourite, Edward I, Longshanks, um, of course, the Hammer of the Scots. Um, so, yeah, Edward I for me, just because of his sense as a military commander as well, he uh, forges uh, to a certain degree this sense of, I mean, not necessarily in a good way, but this sense of this English domination over of obviously Wales and, and, and Scotland uh, and the castle building that he enacts in, in Wales as well. This sheer kind of force of personality and his kind of um, skill as a military leader as well. But Mr. Patterson hasn't reacted very well to this, I don't think, um, because of the, uh, let's just say, um, you know, troublesome uh, reputation he has north of the border. Um, Okay, um, finally, just really, really quickly, um, Millie uh, has been in touch and she has said, who is your favorite queen? Now, we've obviously been talking quite a lot about Queen Elizabeth I. I think it goes without saying that Queen Elizabeth I is the greatest um, mo female monarch, at least if not the greatest monarch that we've ever had. Such a fanboy. Absolutely. Um, but I'll give a shout out for, the, for Queen Matilda as well. He's not really a queen, but sometimes is. Um, any other thoughts? Who's your favourite queen? Queen Elizabeth II, obviously. And despite the fact that you said the most powerful uh, monarch before was was Victoria, but there we are. Um, uh, difference between power and my personal preference. Ab absolutely, of course. And we all owe a certain allegiance to um, our liege lord and sovereign. Uh, God save the queen. God save the queen. And uh, with that, we come to the end of part five. And essentially, a um, couple of things, uh, final things is, um, you're going to be getting some homework over Easter because even though you're at home all the time anyway, why not have some more? Uh, so look out for that. Um, you're also going to be sent some remote learning evaluations. So a little form just to fill in uh, because you've already had uh, lots of good forms this week, just to let us know how well you've, we've been getting on and what you think about stuff. And um, yeah, I think it's just a chance to say thank you for listening if you have been and uh, a happy Easter from myself. Happy Easter, yeah, happy Easter. Why? Why? Oh no, I think it's a good idea. Okay, well, why? Okay, well we can we can re-record re that last bit if you like, and just not have that in there. No, 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 no. You, you can you can you can put that in there. But like...